Hello, this is Dr. Nancy O'Reilly, and you are listening to Conversations with Smart, Amazing Women. Each and every week we bring to you a woman who can help you in so many areas of your life. How about your relationships, your business, your health, and how about your self-esteem? For several years I've been interviewing women who are outstanding experts and leaders in their fields, and we decided to write a book together. So I'm excited to announce that it is finally available for pre-order. It's called Leading Women, 20 Influential Women Share Their Secrets to Leadership, Business, and Life. Now, you can find it on Barnes & Noble and Amazon websites. And today I'm, I'm so excited because I'm going to be talking to one of our Leading Women co-authors, and her name is Rebecca Tinsley. Now, Rebecca is a former BBC reporter and human rights activist. She has founded the human rights group called Waging Peace after she visited the refugee camps in Dafar and Sudan. She has founded the Network for Africa Foundation to help survivors of genocide rebuild their lives. Her third novel told the stories of people she met in Africa when the stars fell to the earth. And she continues to write articles and speak and serve on human rights watch committees to empower people around the world. Her chapter in Leading Women is called African Women Rising, Empowering the Agents of Change. So I'm so excited, and I want to welcome Rebecca back to Conversations with Smart, Amazing Women. Thank you, Rebecca, for being with me. Oh, I'm so excited it's working. Rebecca, thank you so much for being with me. You know, this is just a conversation. You're way, way, way across the pond. Still live in Santa Barbara sometimes? Yes, I'm in Santa Barbara about four months of the year. Spend the rest of the time in London or in Africa. Okay, well, you and I have to get together when you come back. So I'm in Santa Barbara right now. And this Thursday I'm heading to Kenya and then to Ethiopia. So I want to talk about that, too. But, you know, what's really important is that we talk about you. I'm so pleased that you are a co-author for the Leading Women book. I don't know if you've heard, but we've got some great news. Barnes & Noble, we're going to end up uh, in Barnes & Noble's store on an end cap, which is a pretty amazing place for the book to be featured. That is exciting. Yeah. But thank you for being a co-author, and we had our first book launch here in Santa Barbara. We'd wish so much that you were here, but we had a great turnout, about 30 women. But uh, today is about you, because you are one of the co-authors in uh, the Leading Woman book, and your chapter in Leading Women, African Women Writing, Empower the Agents of Change. And Rebecca, that's what you are. You're an author, a journalist, but more than anything, you're an activist, you're all about human rights. So I applaud all your efforts. Really want to get to know you better because of things that uh, that we're all doing. But let's talk about you as far as your personal story. Your story is so important because I think people sometimes look at someone like you who's very successful, who really seems to know and understand what they're doing, but don't realize the process it took to get where you are today. So your story is very valuable. So if you don't mind starting there and sharing it, I would so love that. Well, first of all, you're you're very kind, um, and you're flattering me. Believe me, uh, there is nothing interesting about me, but what I do, my work is interesting and important, but I, I never kid myself that I personally am important. 
not least because the women I work with in Africa keep me permanently humbled by their strength and their resilience and their courage in the face of what they endure with such grace and dignity. Um, and I, I wish I had the grace and dignity that they do, but I don't. Um, I was very blessed to have a mother who was a great, uh, well, she, she brought me up to think that what women did was that they sat at typewriters and they wrote. And she, she had been a war reporter in the Second World War. And, um, as, you know, I was a tiny little girl and she would tell me about the Holocaust and, um, you know, what Europe was like in 1945 um, when the Americans and the, the British and Canadians liberated the countries uh, that had been under the Nazi boot. And, you know, if you grow up with these stories, um, you yeah. tend to think that we all have an obligation to do something, but not just that, that we can do something. And so I really did believe that's what women did. Women went into war zones and women wrote about uh, what they'd seen and tried to be a voice for other women who weren't in a position to speak. So I, I think I was probably very fortunate to grow up with that kind of role model. But, but you told your mother something, because I, I was reading your bio, but you, you told your mo mother something very early about what you wanted to do, and what was that? Because I, I remember you saying to her, this is what I want to do, and this is how I see my life, even as a, even as a young girl. What did you tell her? Well, I I was um, I remember being so angry when she told me about why the Holocaust had happened, and I wanted her to tell me comforting things like this is something that Germans do, and it could never possibly happen in our society, or this is something that stupid people do. And instead, yeah. I remember her saying to me that the the Nazis killed Jews all day, and then they went home and listened to Beethoven and read right. Goethe. And, and that really wasn't the message I wanted, because I wanted some way of making sense of, of the fact that all people are capable of committing the most terrible crimes against other human beings, if they can dehumanize them enough. And she really, because she refused to give me the soft answers that I wanted, she set me on a path throughout my life uh, to try to understand why people can dehumanize their neighbor to such an extent that they can kill them. And that journey has taken me through Bosnia, <clears throat> Rwanda, uh, and um, Sudan uh, most recently. And uh, I have to tell you, I'm still searching for, for the answers, but my journey has helped me understand that for every appalling act, uh, every disgusting thing that human beings are capable of, I do believe that there is a, a corresponding act of decency that in the most terrible situations you meet people who were so courageous, so selfless, uh, and, and that is the inspiration, that the fact that we, we're such strange critters, we're capable of such awful things, yet we're also capable of such beauty and, and decency. I don't know if you've met Amakile Ilbagazi. Uh, she was a, a survivor of the Rwandan Holocaust, and she wrote a book, Left to Tell. And if you haven't read it, please do. It was one of the New York Times bestsellers. And now she speaks. She goes out and speaks to groups about discovering God with, through this Holocaust. But to meet this young woman who now lives in the United States, 
she travels back and forth between here and Africa as well, but, but lives in the United States, but talks about how she forgave all these people, all these men who, who basically slaughtered her family. And, you know, she talks about God, she talks about Mother Mary, but she talks about forgiveness to this degree that, you know, it's, it's almost as if there are these, as you said, there's these groups of people that, on one hand, they're doing horrific things, but then on the other hand, there's these people like Immaculate who just exude love and kindness and forgiveness and really, as you said, make the rest of us feel pretty darn humble as to how in the world the petty things that we let bother us or, you know, or jingle, jangle our cages, so to speak. And then I think the important thing that you are doing, and, and yes, what you do is important. What I'm not important either. It's important what we do. And it's about getting the messages out. But here we are in 2014, and, and my guess is the more we have as far as the ability in real time to get news stories out there, the more and more of us, if we open our eyes and we get out of our boxes, so to speak, we realize there is another world out there that is really needing us to help. For those of us that are blessed, and I truly believe I'm blessed, I have so many resources, I'm blessed, I have a, I have a home, I have a loving, caring family, I, you know, I'm able to get health care, I'm able to choose and make choices, so that to me it is a responsibility. It is a responsibility to share those gifts and to truly reach out. And we're a global society now, and and and, and you're doing that with a couple of different things. And, and I think just sharing those, uh, one of them is you call waging peace, and I, I like that term because you know everybody else is waging war. So your your calling is. Waging, waging peace, and all your network, and also the network for for Africa. If you could share those projects and those missions, I would really appreciate that. Well, thank you. But first of all, as to your point about us being blessed, you you really couldn't be more right. And the truth is that if you grew up in a house with a tap, a water tap that you could turn on that had drinkable water, you are more blessed than some vast majority of people in the world. And if you had electricity in that house, that makes you doubly blessed. And if you had a hospital nearby, again, you are triply blessed. And you know, the funny thing is, people say to me, oh, it must be such a culture shock when you go to Africa. But it's not. The culture shock is when I come home and I walk into a supermarket and I see 15 varieties of ketchup all of which taste terrible or, and are full of additives, or I see 25 varieties of mineral water. And I think, what kind of insane world are we living in? But anyway, that, that is by the by. Um, Network for Africa, I started 10 years ago on my first trip to Rwanda because um, I was so inspired by the genocide widows whom I met and the fact that these women... Uh, who had been through what you described Immaculate going through, and yet they absolutely refused to accept the label of victim. Instead, they said, I'm a survivor. And I think that there's so much um, hangs on the way we define ourselves. And someone who says, I am not a victim, I'm a survivor, who displays that kind of lack of self-pity, how can you not want to help that person? And so I asked them, uh, the women I met, what do you need? Because to be honest, what would I as a, as a white woman 
who's lived a privileged life. What, what, what could I possibly know? And they basically said to me that, you know, they'd all missed education during the genocide um, and they needed a way to support their families so that they could give their daughters the choices that they, they never had. And that meant training them in things like hairdressing, cookery, reading and writing so that they can educate and feed their children. And that's what we do. And at the same time, we also teach them women's rights because under the Rwandan constitution, they actually have women's rights um, that are enforceable, unlike in, in many countries around the world. And so we try to empower women with confidence and with skills. And we also try to acknowledge that, you know, in our society, be it in America or in Europe, we're quite individualistic. We, we look at, into ourselves. But in somewhere like Africa, people actually think more communally. So what we have been doing is encouraging the women to form business cooperatives. So they work together, they cooperate, they support each other. And that can be very practical in terms of, you know, they take it in turns to look after the kids while, you know, two of them go out and sell uh, the cakes that they've made. Uh, and, and it's been really inspiring being involved in this because you can actually see the women blossom, first of all, when they learn to read and write. It opens, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful things in the world, watching a woman learn to read and she realizes she is not alone in the world, that generations of women have shared the feelings that she has. Uh, and and it, it adds to her confidence. The, the second thing that we do, uh, we've realized that, yes, we have to teach women about things like family planning and, and health and hygiene, but we're wasting our time unless we involve the men in their lives because you can teach a woman about family planning but if she goes home and tells her husband and he just beats her as usual it's been a waste of time so we've realized that we have to drag the men along for this journey and the best way to do that is to find male agents of change male role models who can stand up in front of men and say to them, you know, I used to spend all our money on drink. I used to beat my wife and I have changed. And because of that, we now have a better life. And what we call this is positive masculinity. We're asking men to redefine what it means to be a man. So instead of saying, I'm a man because I have 12 children and this proves I'm virile, you ask that man, to instead think about having four children, not having his wife being perpetually exhausted from giving birth and taking care of kids. You say to him, you have four children, you educate them, you give them health care. And guess what? Those four children are more likely to grow up, to be successful, to earn money, and to be able to take care of you when you're an old man. And here's the combination of finding the good local mentor, the guy who they will listen to, and self-interest. And believe it or not, we've made such progress with this, uh, and it really fills me with hope. And we've managed to get the incidents of um, rape, alcoholism, domestic violence crashing down. And we've also managed uh, to get a high percentage of the women now able to talk to their husbands about using family planning. And that's a massive step forward. 
That, that's fantastic. Uh, we, we definitely need to talk about uh, the Women Empowerment Program in Ethiopia, and they have it in several other countries, Haiti, for example, also. But basically, it's a women's co cooperative also starting small businesses in Ethiopia, and, and this is basically what's going on. This becomes a conglomerate of a sisterhood, and they all have small businesses, and they're able to send their children to school. They go through a 10-week uh, training program to, to learn how to run a business, and over 1,600 women have graduated in Ethiopia, but I really think you're... But these, all these women do not have a man in their life. Uh, their, their husband has left. Their boyfriends have left. They're single parents, and they're, and they're raising children, and, of course, Without money to go to school, uh, they'll never get ahead. So this has been the whole key. But there cannot be any gender bias. It has to be gender effective for for truly change to occur. So we we need to talk more about that. But again, you're right. There are these changes. Um, how long has your program have been in existence? Right, this this particular program. Uh, well, I, I first went to Rwanda 10 years ago, and um, we've been doing the training of women since about 2007. Uh, and we take in another 150 women each year, uh, and we give them a year's worth of training. Uh, and then they, they graduate, but they never leave because they become part of cooperatives. And so we also ask that for all the training we give them, they have a moral duty to go away and teach somebody else what they've learned. And this is called the cascade system, and it's how you reach more and more and more people. So, for instance, we've been doing this in our project in Uganda, and we've met with, with a tiny number of resources and people. We've managed to reach 50,000 people and to, to actually transform 50,000 lives, uh, wow. which I'm quite awesome. proud of. Well, I, I would love for you to be able to talk with our organization you know, there's a lot of organizations out there, and, and I think the important thing is that collaboration because there are things going on throughout Africa that I think can be shared and can really, uh, uh, you know, the resources can be combined. So I think that would be fantastic if we could talk at some point. When you do return to Santa Barbara and then uh, get you to meet some of these people as well, meet some of your, your people as well too, so that's fantastic. So that, I mean, that's unbelievable, 50,000 people, and, and again, the change is occurring in, in a lot, at such a, a deep lifestyle cultural change, which is the most effective of changing those patterns and those generations and generations of habitual behaviors that have been non-productive. So I, I applaud your efforts. That's absolutely fantastic. But okay, well, no, I love to hear more about that. But your other one, waging waging peace. I think um, we just recently did a blog and, and kind of a spin-off of a story that you did a day of, of the girl child, and we did a blog on that. And, again, it was in Huffington Post. And, again, you know, sometimes we have to open – I mean, we not sometimes. We always need to open people's eyes to what's going on. <clears throat> this was a very, very difficult uh, article that you wrote, and it's very difficult to read and a very difficult one to understand. But we went ahead and definitely promoted and put a blog on that. People don't understand what's going on. They just don't get it. They they seem to be, you know, women's roles in, in all countries. In the United States, of course, again, we really can't make that comparison. But culturally, women in other countries continue to struggle as far as uh, the uh, value of a girl and a woman, especially in some of these these countries. What, what can you say about that? And, again, let's just talk about the article that you did write 
the day of the girl child? I think um, at the root of it, what we always fail to understand is that you cannot expect total change by just showering money on a society. The horrible truth is that a lot of girls around the world are raised to accept an inferior status. Um, they are, you know, we need to lose our Hollywood romantic notions that all parents love their children because there's an awful lot of evidence to the contrary. Right. You know, and when a girl is born in many, many countries around the world, she is seen as a burden because traditionally the girl is sent off to marry someone and she will not take care of her parents when they get old. She'll be taking care of her husband's family. So her parents just regard her as a burden that they want to get rid of as soon as possible. And that's why you have a situation where all across the world, in the developing world, girls as young as nine years old are being married off, often to pay their father's drinking debts. You know, there is no, let's get rid of this notion that these are romantic marriages. You can have a nine-year-old being married to a 40-year-old to whom their father owes money. Uh, it's, it's, it's no more pleasant than that. Those poor little girls then endure a life that is really nothing short of slavery uh, and continual rape. They're, they give birth at far too young an age. Their poor little bodies are not ready for this. Therefore, the rate of mortality among young child mothers uh, is, is enormous. In some parts of Africa, it's one in seven uh, young women dying in childbirth. It's the leading cause of death among girls. One in seven compared within our society, which is one in 42,000, to put it in perspective. And, of course, one of the byproducts of that as well is this horrible condition called fistula, which basically means that uh, a girl is completely shunned by her community because of this unpleasant medical condition, which comes from forcing girls to give birth far too, far too young. And I think unless you understand that as a girl grow up, grows up, she is told she's not really worth anything. You know, she is deprived of school. She's given less food. If her brother gets ill, the money will be found for him to see a doctor. One of the most depressing things I think I've ever heard was a, a place in Uganda. I was uh, an orphanage uh, that, that we support, we help. And the woman running the orphanage said to me, as we looked out at the playground, she said, you see, we've got little girls playing with little boys. She said, that's revolutionary here. And I said, what do you mean it's revolutionary? And she said, in our society, we don't let little girls play games because they might develop an imagination. The minute a girl can walk, she is carrying a bucket to a well to fetch water for her mother. And when you think about that sort of image of girlhood, that they're not allowed to develop an imagination because they are simply there to help their mother until they're married off, then you understand why it is so utterly important to educate these girls and to open a window and allow them to have choices. Uh, you know, for me, the, it, it's come down to, you know, I, I'm sure you feel the same way in many respects, is that you have to figure out where your battles are. You have to figure out what you can do and realize you can't do it all. So, you know, I'm sure with your two different projects, I mean, your missions, that 
you, you have to concentrate on what you're able to do and not what you're not able to do. And I think that's sometimes what happens to those of us in the United States that are clueless is that we look at something so horrendous and so difficult to understand is that we put our heads in the sand. But, you know, if, if we can just get people to look at something that they can do to really help these young girls, to help the, these these countries in their, to change culture and to give them opportunities. What are some of your greatest suggestions or things that you that when you come back to this country, and as you said, you come back and, of course, the first thing is is just to say, oh, my gosh, don't you understand what you have here? You have so much. And all these people are living across the world that have so little and have better attitudes. They seem happier than most of you. But what are some of the things that you say to people when you come back to the United States or, or even to London and say, gee, here's some things that you all can do, if asked? Well, first of all, I think it's, I mean, you put your finger on it. It's, it's so overwhelmingly depressing to look at the status of girls around the globe that the only way to deal with this psychologically is to look at a small part that you can affect. And if you look at the big picture, I mean, frankly, whether this is women's rights or the environment or, you know, nuclear proliferation, you really just want to kill yourself. So the best thing to do is to look at a small area that you can affect um, and where you can make a transformational change. And I, in my small way, I've decided that the key is through educating girls and women yeah. and allowing them a chance to get a skill so they are no longer dependent on the men around them uh, who really will not help them in any way. Yeah. It is also incredibly important, you know, a lot of people look at the big picture and say, we need legal rights. But you know what, if, if you're a woman and you can't read that you have legal rights, nobody's going to tell you you have them and you can't enforce them. So it's all very well, you know, to think, yes, we'll pass this law, we'll have this international treaty. It's completely meaningless if you are a poor woman living at the end of a, a track uh, in rural Africa. Much more relevant, I think, is that we in the West identify the agents of change within African society, and we empower those agents of change because we, we really flatter ourselves if we think that, you know, me, a white woman, I can go there and make any difference. I don't think I can. My job is to raise awareness and to raise money in our society. It is not to go around lecturing Africans. My job is to find the Africans who are the credible uh, messengers, who will actually be listened to and who are the agents of change, and then to support those people because they're the ones who are actually going to change their own society. And I have to say, it's never going to be their leaders. Their leaders are from an elite who are so wealthy, it makes the gap between me and Bill Gates look small. You know, their, their elite have every reason to keep their people poor and ignorant and frightened, because that's how they keep in control and that's how they keep the money. So I really believe we have to bypass the elite and in, in a very small, modest way, with baby steps, we empower the girls and the women 
to have choices. We, we have to go to these countries and, and, as you said, find the agents of change that truly they are vested. They want better lives for themselves and for their children and their, and their community. I mean, without that, we really are. We're spinning our wheels. Uh, but, you know, we've seen people, for example, who, get the, who win the lottery, and if they don't know what to do with it and they don't understand what it's able to, you know, what their dollar can do for them as far as a better life, uh, people they historically, I mean, I know this is probably a poor example, but typically the person who has won the lottery years late after a year or so has lost all the money and is no better off than when they started. And I think that's kind of what, what we're doing to some of these countries. I, I think of the missionaries who, who went into these countries to change these people. <laughs> you know, I mean, on one hand, they were trying to make everything better, but on the other hand, it's almost like you, you, you can't cut someone's arm off and expect them to have full usage of their of their bodies. You know, I mean, I think that's kind of what we've done in the past. And For example, the, the Women Empowerment Program in Ethiopia, the, the government is supporting these programs. In other words, they're, aware, they're supporting them, they're behind the programs, they have people involved from the country in the programs. This is the only way it's going to be affected. This is the only way it's going to change. And then your graduates, as you said, the 50,000, your graduates of these programs are the ones that become the agents of change and can go out and truly speak to how their lives are different. Because I think part of it is, is a lot of times people don't believe their lives can be different. Isn't that part of the issue? They just don't think. Oh, absolutely. Um, and why would a woman believe that when, you know, for generations she has been treated as an inferior creature who is there to serve men? Um, she has been overburdened with having to give birth to a child every year. Uh, it's, it's pretty hard to open a window of imagination for her. Uh, she doesn't have access to the Internet. She's lucky if she can listen to a radio. She doesn't have around her positive female role models. And I, I think that's such an important key because most of us remember when we were young being inspired by some teacher perhaps or a, a strong woman figure and thinking, well, you know, maybe if, if she can do that, I can emulate it. And I think we underestimate the, the power, the impact that a positive role model can have um, on a young girl uh, in a village in Africa. And you're right, it isn't going to be a missionary because, to be honest, white people we're pretty exotic, you know, if you live Kind of stand out a little bit, don't we? <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and, um, there is a, a large um, belief still in superstition and magic in a lot of places. And, and these folk really do think that the reason that we are healthy and big and rich, which we are by their standards, is, is luck. Uh, rather than hard work or the Industrial Revolution or the invention of penicillin. And so, you know, we, we need to find local people uh, who can say, there is another way and, and this is how you do it. And you, as a man, for instance, do not have to keep defining yourself as a warrior and a hunter because there aren't the wars to fight anymore and all the animals have been hunted. So you need to redefine your masculinity in a positive way that doesn't mean being idle and letting the women do all the work. You know, we've been doing an exercise in our training programs uh, where we get, we, we have a big blackboard, and on one side of the blackboard, we get the women to call out 
their duties, their responsibilities, and we list them. And that includes all the agricultural work, all the domestic work, taking care of old people, taking care of ill people. On the other side of the blackboard is the men's list of responsibilities. And, of course, it's, you know, it's a tiny, tiny list. And just by getting the men to sit and look at the difference between those two lists, it actually has a profound effect on them. Well, I know every day is a new day, and I think you have to look at it that way, what you can accomplish today and, and tomorrow was, is yet to be. You know, I, I just got a, a little note. I really love this saying, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, today is a gift. And I think that's kind of where we're at. You know, and that was uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's statement, which was, you know, and I truly believe that's where we are, especially even with this whole issue, this whole condition of a country. But it really is in so many ways um, – I'd like to think of it as a metaphor or even an analogy of what goes on in our own country at a certain level because there are those that care and there are those that feel obligated and responsible for those that are not able to care for themselves. So I'm beginning to understand that we are a global society and that we truly do uh, become stronger as we, as we reach out to one another, whatever part of the world we are, and we help one another. So... I'm I'm excited. Um, I'm excited to go to Africa. I'm excited to go to Ethiopia, and uh, look at this program. I'm I'm involved in, a, in an advisory board. It's called Women of Hope, and I'm I'm very um, very blessed. And Women Connect for Good Foundation. So I think there's things that we can do as well together, uh, Rebecca. So when we when I get back from Africa, I'd love to sit down with you, and whenever you're back in town, just have a need a face-to-face with you and just really connect because I think there's so many things that we could join forces on. So I'm excited about that prospect. I will look forward to that very much, and it's, it's great to hear your voice again as well. Well, like I said, we just keep doing what we can. <laughs> well, but every day, uh, you know, I, sometimes people say to me, isn't it depressing working with the women you work with who've endured um, lives of near slavery or female genital mutilation or they've survived a genocide or they've seen their children murdered in front of them. But the truth is, you know, every day I hear a story of a woman who's turned her life around uh, and who now has hope and who now has options. Oh, yeah. And yeah. really that is the most wonderful natural high. Why, why yeah. would I need alcohol when all I have to do is look at the a beautiful smiling face of a woman who has discovered what it means to be a woman and to be free. And, and that's what we're going to do in Ethiopia is go and meet the women that have gone through the program and who've graduated and look at the women that are coming through the program. So, and, and again, you're right. These are, if, if there's just one, one testimonial, one person who can share that message, it's so very, very powerful. And like I said, it just it gives us all hope. It just gives us all hope. And I don't really think that we have the right to feel anything but hope. Well, I, I, as, as always, it's a pleasure and, a, and an honor to speak with you, and, and I look forward to future, future times that we can collaborate and join forces because I think there's many, many great things that we can do to help others. So I want to thank you for, for us finally getting together, and we beat the technology today. I'm so excited. <laughs> Well, it's an honor for me, uh, and thank you very much for including me um, in in the book. Um, It was a a thrill, um, and a a thrill not least for the women in Africa 
for whom I am trying to give a voice. Uh, you, you have inadvertently given them a voice as well, and they're, they're pretty excited about that. Well, the 20 women is, that are sharp and amazing and what they're able to co- accomplish and give back in the world is really what this is about and this community that, that is developing, I hope, will continue to grow and, and understand that women, helping women is what it's about and, and women who, have, who want to stay amazing but have the ability to help those that are coming up through the ranks because we all need mentors. We all need to be a mentor and we all need a mentor. So this is what what uh, seems to be helping us all to, to keep make, uh, making a difference. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, the the things I've been talking about with positive masculinity, these aren't just lessons for Africans. I think they apply in our own society as well. No, they're they're all equally important, just in different degrees. So, well, you have a wonderful day, and you let me know when you're back, and and we'll we'll have that meeting, and uh, we'll continue to talk about ways we can work together. I hope you have a splendid time in Ethiopia. I would love to chat with you when I get back. I wish you a safe journey.